Then you may be seated. Please turn in your Bibles. Actually, we have two rather short sections to read today. The first, our main text from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll be moving to Colossians 3, verses 22 through 25, those two passages. We'll also be referring to other passages in the course of the message. A couple of things, uh, though, before I read these texts. Uh, I have a, a big correction to make in your sermon outline in the bulletin. You'll notice that the first point says the background of the third commandment. It should be the fifth. I don't know how I got three and five mixed up, but I did, and I sent in the wrong information. It's the fifth commandment. Second thing before we read our text is, as all of you know, we've been hearing the stories, the reports coming off the island of Maui uh, in Hawaii, the tragic uh fire, wildfire that swept through the Lahaina area. We have friends there. We have, uh, there's a, a little church that we have visited there when we've been vacationing in Maui. It's a tiny little Baptist church, uh, but it is, uh, it has people who love the Lord, a preacher who preaches from God's word and in a very straightforward, simple way, and we have always been refreshed when we have worshipped with that congregation. Their building was destroyed. The pastor's house was destroyed. The assistant pastor's house was destroyed. And we don't know right now the, the people. I'm sure many of the people who go there lost their homes as well. We don't know if any were among the, the rising number of people uh, who, were, who were killed or injured in that fire. Uh, please pray for particularly the brothers and sisters in Lahaina, in that area, who are today without homes, not knowing what they will do or how they will put their lives back together. Sometimes God's providences are very hard and hard to understand. And yet we know that all things for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, all things work for the good. And the good is that we are more and more conformed to Christ. How this all works out, we do not know. But please remember these brothers and sisters in your prayers. Moving on to our two texts this morning from 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. And then, Moving on to Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 25. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. 
for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Here we end the readings of God's Word. And as I said, we will be looking at other passages in the course of the message. Also, if you come back this evening, we're going to read one of the key passages in the New Testament dealing with this very topic, and, and especially de- dealing with the topic of, a, of a, 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 a slave owner whose runaway slave Paul is sending back to him. And we'll see what, how Paul handles this very uh, delicate situation. That is the letter to Philemon. And we'll be reading that along with Ephesians this evening. Our translation that I read from this morning uses the term bondservants for the Greek word doulos. But it can also mean servant, bondservant, or even slave. Biblical teaching on slavery is a careful balance between preserving order, which is an extension of the fifth commandment, contentment with God's providence, and the character of God who is no respecter of persons. That is, we all stand before him as equals. Now, this is interesting, and and I admit there's a tension here. There's something of a tension here. I think this tension comes because we live in a world that God created, but we live in a world that has fallen. And we live with tensions, apparent contradictions, apparent principles that are not quite in harmony with each other, be precisely because we live in a fallen world. We see in the world evidence of God's goodness and also evidence of God's judgment. We see wonderful, beautiful things, and we see terrible things. On the island of Maui, you can behold beautiful sunrises and sunsets, and you can today look at a burned-out town. We live in this world under the curse and after the fall in a world of contradictions. And let me tell you, this thing, this institution that we call slavery or a bondservant, this is part of living in a fallen world. It is also, and here's where the balance comes in, it is also important to God to preserve order. To preserve order. He is the one who says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Notice in these in these two passages that we've read, Paul's concern not to encourage an overthrow of the structures of society, but rather to encourage not only that those structures are respected, but also that the the sweet aroma of the gospel needs to permeate those structures as well. The wisdom of God needs to permeate those structures as well. We're going to be looking at the background of the fifth commandment and how that background is is at work in what Paul writes about servants. We're going to look at the various duties of bond servants and masters as uh, they are recorded in these and other passages of Scripture. And finally, we're going to come back to this idea that in Paul's teaching on this subject, and particularly tonight we'll see this when we read Philemon, 
Paul is actually setting the scene for the subtle subversion of this institution of bondservant, of the bondservant or the slave. And we'll see how this comes, particularly when you have a believing master and a believing servant. How does that, how does that work out? What does the gospel do to that relationship? We'll also see, and I think this is a key point, and we will come back to this, what does it mean when God says, when Christ says, when the Word of God says, there is neither, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. How does that apply? And like I said, this is a delicate balance of preserving the foundations of a social order based on the fifth commandment, but also recognizing the need for the gospel to permeate all of our lives and all of our relationships. Now, you might say, speaking of relationships, Pastor Allen, I'm not a slave, and I don't own any slaves. Well, thank God. But you do have an employer, don't you? And sometimes you might think that employer is a slave driver. And sometimes you might feel like a slave. And that's kind of in our, in our social setting today, that's kind of the, the, analogy, the closest analogy we can probably uh, find in our settings to this teaching on servants and masters, slaves and masters. And some of the same principles apply. Some of the same principles apply. So as we study this ancient issue, which in many parts of the world is not an ancient issue, but is very much a real issue today, uh, we apply it as best we can to our own situations. The fifth commandment. Who knows the fifth commandment? Honor your father and your mother that thy days, your days, may be long upon the land that the Lord your God gives you. And Paul quotes that commandment in the book, to, uh, in the letter to the Ephesians. And he quotes that promised blessing as well. He says, This is the first commandment with a promise. The first commandment with promise. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land that the Lord your God gives you. Our Shorter Catechism asks this question after say, stating the, the fifth commandment. It says, what is required in the fifth commandment? The answer is the fifth commandment requires the preserving, the honor, and performing the duties belonging to everyone in their several places and relations as, and this is where the structure comes in, as superiors, as equals, and as inferiors. In almost all of our relationships, we have one of those categories. Uh, parents are superiors. Children are inferiors. And Paul, and this is, this is what's behind this commandment. Inferiors owe certain things to their superiors. By the way, particularly in the larger catechism, it also lays out the duties of superiors to inferiors and warns against the sins of superiors to inferiors. It gets a little complicated, but I will tell you, if you read in our larger catechism, 
that whole section, that whole exposition of the fifth commandment, you will come away with a, a sense of a, a well-ordered society, a society built on respect, a society built on order, very unlike our society today. Not everything may fit our society today, but it really is instructive. And you realize that the fifth commandment is applied way beyond the nuclear family, way beyond fathers and mothers on one side and children on the other side, superiors and inferiors. They understood that this commandment also taught an orderly society beyond the family. We find that also in the church. Respect the elders of the church and instructions to the elders that, as to not being overbearing, but to serve gladly as those who will give an account before God for their service. We see all of these, in the interplay of relationships, and we categorize them as superior, inferior, and also equals. The family is the foundational structure for a stable social order, and all aspects of our social order are patterned in some way by our family relationships. One of the pernicious things, of course, today is we see attacks on the family. We've been seeing them for a long time. This is nothing new. Back in the 1970s, I was getting my degree in elementary education, and guess what? We studied the attacks coming through the education establishment way back 50 years ago. We saw how that establishment was attacking the family. It's gotten much more pronounced now. The family is the foundational structure, and if you destroy the structure of the family, you will inevitably destroy the society in which you live. The commandment, then, is far broader. We can talk about parents as superiors, children as inferiors. We can talk about peers, peers, people who are your equals, we can apply it to church structure, and we can apply it to the structures of our society. We think of government. We think of, again, admonitions in Scripture of submitting to even the secular authorities, the civil magistrate. Uh, Paul writes in Romans 13 about that. So this, this concept of a structure of society that's that at its heart has the family in view, but permeates or is applied in many different areas outside the family as well, as well as a, a biblical structure of society. That's kind of the general background of the fifth commandment influence here in this passage. But let's look more closely at the specific passages with deal, which deal with these issues. 1 Timothy 6, our main text, we read it. I'll read it very quickly again. Uh, Let all those who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters of worthy of all honor. So what are the duties of servants to their masters? You are to regard your masters as worthy of all honor. They are to be regarded with respect. They are to be given the honor that is that they are due as 
a superior. Paul goes on, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Now, this is an interesting take here. Why? Well, yes, you might say the thing itself is important to show respect to a master, to show respect to a superior. But Paul also says there's a higher purpose here. There's a purpose that that we also need to be aware of, and that is that the name of God and the teaching is not reviled. Biblical teaching is not reviled. Here you have in the first century a world in which slavery was common. Slavery was very common, and it was common all throughout society. It was common all throughout the world. And as the church grows— you're going to have to deal with it within the church because you will have slave owners and slaves as believers in the church. You are teaching a gospel that is strange to many people that they have never heard of, and you will be accused as subverting uh, the, the order of a nation. Christians were suspected in, in the Roman Empire of fomenting revolution, of fomenting the destruction of the society because they did not worship Caesar, but only worship God. And Paul is saying it's important here, too, so that you do not give the critics, the enemies, further ammunition against the gospel, against God, that they do not revile God or revile the teaching, which is, of course, biblical teaching, biblical doctrine. Paul goes on, he says, in the case of a believing servant and a believing master, there's another element to this relationship. You are actually brothers in Christ. That's first, oh, sorry, I'm reverting to Joe Biden here. That's the first instance of the subtle subversion of this institution. You are brothers. Mm. Oh, how's that going to affect everything? Now, Paul doesn't dwell on that right now, except to say that, in fact, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. So he's saying just because you're a Christian and you're both Christians now is not an excuse to become a revolutionary. It's not an excuse to become rebellious or to take advantage of that situation. In fact, Paul goes on, that relationship that you both have with Christ, you are both in Christ, you are brothers, that relationship is actually a reason for even better work in your master's service. It's a reason to bring glory to God and to your Savior by being even better and more dedicated and more honorable in your work. Why doesn't this go counter to so much that we've been raised to think? I'm an individual. I have my rights. <laughs> you have the right to remain silent, but very often you do not have the ability. Uh, sometimes, sometimes we need to recognize that there are more important things than privileges and rights. And honoring God is more important. Even better work. Okay, now apply this to your situation at work. 
your employer, your boss, especially if that employer or that boss is a believer. How does this teach you to in that relationship? How does how do you apply this in that relationship? Let's look at our second text, Colossians 3, 22 through 25. And again, focusing here on the, the duties of servants to masters. Colossians 3 says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Notice here, not with eye service, and that's always a temptation for everything that we do, that it is simply, we call it eye service or lip service or something like that, meaning we, we only give outward uh, a, an outward appearance of doing our work or following through with our responsibilities, but our heart's not in it. And we do it in a half-hearted manner, an insincere manner. And Paul writes in Colossians that even your work as a servant should be done sincerely. But notice also he says here, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. The relationship you have with God influences this. Just as you are to give honor to your master, you are also honoring God. You are honoring your Lord. You are never apart from that saving relationship which is the ultimate relationship of a superior and an inferior. The ultimate relationship there. Paul goes on, verse 23, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are actually working for Christ. You are serving him. And ultimately, your reward will come from him for your faithfulness in the calling that God has given you. By the way, this also influences the way we look at our work. It is a calling. It is a calling. It is what God intended you to do, what he prepared you to do. By his providence, he guided you to where you are serve with that attitude, which is really an attitude of gratefulness, an attitude of sincerity. The final verse of Colossians chapter 3, verse 25, uh, that passage, says this, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. He's, he's still writing in the context of the, of the servant here, the, the slave, the servant, the wrongdoer will be paid back for his wrong, the opposite of the reward. If you serve faithfully, you will be rewarded. If you serve half-heartedly, if you serve with only eye service, if you serve with a rebellious spirit, you will be paid back for the wrong you have done. But notice what he says, and there is no partiality. He's going to say that again, but in a very different context in a verse that we'll look at in a minute. There is no partiality. That's a second sign of the subtle subversion of this institution of slavery. There is no partiality. Let's look at masters. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9, we'll read this tonight in the, in the larger context of the whole letter. 
where Paul is actually applying the fifth commandment to various relationships. He writes this, Ephesians 6, verse 9, Masters do the same thing to them. He has just finished telling the slaves, the servants, how to serve their masters faithfully, how to, how to uh, serve in a way that honors Christ. And now he's turning to the masters and he says, do the same thing to them. You exercise your authority over your servant in the same way, with the same attitude, with the same uh, understanding that you yourself have a master in heaven, that you yourself are under authority, that you yourself will be held accountable on that day. You are to serve, you are to do the same thing. You are to conduct yourself with the same principles. And then he says, and stop your threatening. And stop your threatening. There's a way to exercise authority that's right, and there's a way that's wrong. And if you do it by constant threats, you become an abuser, you become abusive, you become a bad employer or a bad leader. If all you know is how to threaten people, I, some of you have probably experienced this at work, where your, your boss wants more out of you and there's a threat. There's a threat. Unless you produce more, bad things are going to happen. And I'm sure you've realized that that's a terrible way to motivate people, isn't it? They might have to in certain extreme cases. But generally speaking, that's not a good motivator. And so Paul applies that here to masters. But notice here, he goes on, knowing, stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. The implication of that, he is in heaven, and that is, he sees. He knows. And he sits in the place of authority in heaven. You have a master, masters. You too are under authority. And here's where he comes back with that statement that in the previous uh, passage we looked at, he is pointing at servants, for there is no partiality with God. And here he says the same thing in Ephesians 6, 9, where he's talking to masters, and he says, and that there is no partiality with him. He's made the connection here between masters and slaves and said, look, before God, there is no partiality. He's not going to favor you over him. He's not going to favor him over you. When you stand before God, there is no partiality. Have you ever heard the, the, the Latin phrase, coram Deo? You ever heard that? What does it mean? Living before the face of God. We all, superiors, equals, and inferiors, we all live before the face of God. And before his face, there is no partiality. There is no favoritism. Moving on to uh, another verse in the letter to the Colossians, verses, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul in Colossians turns his attention to masters, and he says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, 
knowing that you also have a master in heaven. We've read from different letters, and you can see that Paul repeats certain themes and certain principles throughout these letters. These are teachings that applied in very different towns and very in churches, but they apply in this, in this situation. And these principles are applicable in our areas where we are dealing with inferiors, superiors, and equals. You also have a master in heaven. How do, oh, let me, let me make one final comment on this point. Young people, how you treat your parents will also be reflected in your attitude toward God. You treat your parents with disrespect, you will find it very easy to treat God with disrespect, and vice versa. If you have disrespect for God, you will find it almost impossible to respect your parents. Brothers and sisters, in all of our relationships, you probably, in in several of your relationships, you may find yourself as the superior. If you do not honor God as your superior, you will not be a good leader. You will not be a good husband. You will not be a good father. You will not be a good employer if you do not honor God in your relationship. Pastor, that seems awfully hard. You don't usually speak to us in that that bluntly. Paul's pretty blunt here. These are plain words. There's, you don't have to exegete these passages <laughs> to, very, very much to, to understand what Paul's saying. And so Paul speaks plainly to us. I'm speaking plainly to you. Let me make this final point as we come to a conclusion. The subtle subversion of an institution. I've always been amazed that people accuse the church of being... you. The Bible, they accuse the Bible. The Bible allows for slavery. That's terrible. That's like a, a rejection of, of the whole message of the Bible right there because it, it tolerates slavery. As I said, the Bible has this balance of preserving order but also undermining an institution which is accompanied by immeasurable sin and wickedness and suffering. So let me give you how the Bible also begins the, the permeation. And this is, how the, this is how God brings about change in us, and this is how he brings about change in the world when he deigns to do so. Remember, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like yeast. And what does yeast do? Does yeast immediately change everything of that lump of dough that you put the yeast into and you... Does it? No, you have to let it set, and it slowly works its way through the whole lump of dough, and it rise. The dough rises, and it becomes more useful. And the kingdom of God works that way in the world. Paul does not mount a revolution to deal with a social injustice, but he does teach the permeating truth of the gospel and the implications of the gospel that will ultimately 
affect the way we think about this. One, he's already stated in the passages we've looked at, God is no respecter of persons. He is not partial. We are all on the same level before him, and even masters have a master in heaven. Those things, as we meditate on them, as we think about them, as they permeate our hearts, are going to lay a foundation for the subversion of the institution of involuntary servanthood, which is a nice way of saying slavery. Let's go back to the very beginning of the Bible, the creation account. Did God create one people over here to be servants and one people over here to be masters? No, he did not. We have one common father. In Adam, our He is the ancestor of us all. In Adam, we all fall, too. We have a common ancestry. We have one earthly father. That creation account, by the way, is very interesting that when people began to overthrow their their understanding of when when the... uh, People challenge the creation account in Scripture. People come up with this theory of evolution. Guess what? Evolutionary thought actually can be used to justify slavery. Are you higher on the evolutionary chain? Yeah, you are. Well, guess what? Survival of the fittest. You get to make the rules. But creation tells us that we all have one earthly father. There's another stroke of the acts against an institution. Thirdly, as we believers grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will find his grace influencing all of our relationships, including those relationships of superiors and inferiors. Tonight, we're going to read Philemon as an example of how God's grace in Christ permeates a relationship. But here's here's some verses that we should think about as well. Galatians 3, 26 through 28. For in Christ Jesus, you all are sons of God through faith. Now, when Paul writes this to the Galatians, he's going to be writing this to people who are slave owners and slaves. And he says this, you are all sons of God in Christ. Coram Deo, you are all on the same level. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In this relationship that you have with Jesus Christ, and you are in Christ, you have put on Christ, you are never apart from Christ. And in that relationship, all of these other distinctions that we make and that have been made, fall away. They fall away. And you are left 
with you and Christ and your brothers and sisters. Similarly, in Colossians 3.11, again, just prior to our main passage today, or our secondary passage, here, that is, in Christ, with Christ, there is not Greek or and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. The other passage focuses uh, primarily, exclusively, on our relationship to Christ and how that relationship, that oneness in Christ, means all these other distinctions fade away for us, and they become unimportant as we consider ourselves in Christ. Here he also adds this, this thought, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is all. Think of the implications of that for your relationships. Christ is all. It's not your prerogative as a superior. It's not your suffering as an inferior or or the, the testing of your patience, if you will, as an inferior. It is Christ is all. We turn our attention away from these things, away from this world that is under a curse, and we look at Christ. He is all. How much suffering in the world would have been alleviated if Christians had actually done that? If Christians had just said, Christ is all. And that truth permeates our hearts, permeates the way we conduct ourselves with other people, permeates our families, permeates our churches, permeates our nation. Christ is all. Brothers and sisters, you can tell that is my passion. Amen and amen. Heavenly Father, help us Help us to see Christ is all. Christ is everything. Our service to Christ is the guiding light of our work in the world. Pray this in his name. Amen.